What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain there are certain times and certain products in Onnit's history that I get particularly excited about. Like I remember when I first made what was called Hemp Force, which is now Power Food Active, and I was actually ordering the raw ingredients and getting my mixing spoon and trying to figure it out and trying to decipher how to make it. And I finally made a good formula and I started making shakes and I was so stoked. I was like literally running around to the neighbors, having them try these homemade smoothies. And, you know, there's been moments like that with the supplements and with fitness equipment and with different things throughout history. And right now we have another one of those moments and it's with the new Onnit protein bars that are coming out. So we first made our first foray and we had these vanilla almond bars, which were great. But we really had the opportunity to take them to the next level once we got used to that formula, once we understood what the flavor profiles could be, how to take those to the next level. So I'm so thrilled and so happy to announce that we now have two new flavors, which are absolutely my favorite flavors, the blueberry walnut and the mint chocolate chip. And just like our other protein bars, it has a combination of 60 different plant ingredients along with grass-fed whey. And it's really low sugar. All the bars have under five grams of sugar. They taste phenomenal. You're getting all the micronutrients from all those different plant ingredients. You're getting healthy fats. It's one of the best bars that I've ever seen on the market unequivocally. I mean, you look at some of the other famous bars that are out there. A lot of them have a lot of sugar. A lot of them have a lot of artificial ingredients. Nobody's using grass-fed whey and 60 different plant. It's completely unique. And I really do truly believe that the flavors are unparalleled here. And we got some new protein bites that are coming out as well. But for right now, we're focusing on the protein bars and they're absolutely phenomenal. So go to onnit.com slash Aubrey, lock in your 10% and try these things out. I promise you, you're not going to be disappointed. I mean, the blueberry ones are like, are crazy. They like blow your mind. I'm a huge mint chocolate chip fan too. So I'm all over these things and I think you guys will be too. So once again, onnit.com slash Aubrey and uh, check out the new protein bars. I was able to share a stage with Amber Ray at the Entrepreneur Live event in New York, and I was happy to share this podcast with her as well. She's the best-selling author of Choose Wonder Over Worry, a motivational speaker, and has tons of really cool actionable tips and ways to understand the human psyche and our emotional body and make improvements to it. So I hope you guys enjoy this next hour with Amber Ray. Amber Ray. Aubrey Marcus. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. 
So we got to meet in Austin, hang for a bit, which was awesome. And then we found ourselves on the same stage here in New York at Entrepreneur Live, which was a cool experience for me to be able to see you tell your story mm. in that larger context where really you were diving into some you know, parts of your personal history that have shaped who you were. And I was thinking we could maybe start there, start with some very significant events that mm. happened in your childhood. And then as you just shared when we were downstairs uh, meeting before this, how that kind of culminated and actually was able to work its way through in a plant medicine ceremony that you mm -hmm. recently did. So mm -hmm. yeah, I thought that would be a good place to start for our listeners. Beautiful. So there were two significant moments in my childhood. One was actually before I was born. Uh, my mom was in a car accident. She was the passenger in the car and she had her seat pulled back and she doesn't remember much of anything. She was asleep and she woke up nine days later to learn that she was in a traumatic, fatal car accident. Um, they were preparing to put her in a body bag and realized that she actually had moved her arm, realized she actually had a heart rate. I don't know if she didn't at one point, but they, you know, they thought she was dead. So this is some like Romeo and Juliet <laughs> shit, know. you know, right? Where it's like, it took the poison that slowed everything <laughs> and faked everybody into thinking I was dead, but actually I was alive. Like that shit really happens. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. And it's true. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. And then the the crazier part is that when she woke up, um, so she had, when she woke up, she had more of other people's blood than her own because she had lost so much in the accident. And that's when she also found out that she was five weeks pregnant. And because- With you. With me. And because of the radiation, because of the amount of blood loss, because they didn't know she was pregnant when she came in, the doctor said to her, you know, we don't know if your baby's actually going to make it to term or if she does, she could have some serious issues. And this was back in the AIDS ep epidemic. Mm. So- after until I was nine years old, I'll get there in a minute. But until I was nine years old, I had to go check to make sure that I didn't have AIDS. Well, well, that's a little <laughs> excessive for the incubation period for HIV. I think well, I don't think it's nine years, but well, we had a I don't know up until my childhood. I was getting tests. We, everybody fucked. You know, you get that clean test, and you're like, it could be nine years from now. Who knows? Yeah, I I have that would be something I'd be curious to look uh, into. But all I know that I know they that, didn't know that much about AIDS back then. Yeah, so. all I know is that I had to go to the doctor and make sure I was okay. <laughs> I didn't yeah. ask many questions. Yeah. But anyway, so um the you know, the doctors tell her she might not make it to term and my mom is just convinced. My mom is a like powerful, badass, very, you know, she she has strong opinions. And so when the doctors mm -hmm. told her that, she was like, hell no, my daughter's my baby's gonna be perfectly healthy. And so of course, eight months later, I came into the world and she named me Amber Ray after an Amber Ray of Golden Sunlight because she said I was gonna be the light in her world. So that was like one pivotal moment. And I, you know, I think what was special about that is, is that, you know, being raised by her, she constantly reminded me of that light, you know, you never know what happens in life and that yeah. I was here to be a light. And I think that influenced sort of both what I thought of myself and what I thought I was capable of. And she was very, anything is possible, you know, chase your dreams. And she became an entrepreneur and I watched her build a business. You know, I think the the combination for success is someone, because my mother was the same, mm. just radical, unconditional love. Mm -hmm. And it's that mixed with a healthy amount of challenge. Yes. You know what I mean? Because I think you can almost get, and it's it depends on the type of love. And I think, you know, there's the coddling love and there's the, oh, let me round all the corners and help you pretend that life isn't something that's sharp. But I think you can, so you can get pretty far with that. But I do think like having some real challenge mm -hmm. in your life in combination with someone who really sees you at your best, like sees you for what you're capable of, loves you 
to their best ability as close to unconditionally as they can in that environment of pressure. And then the sanctuary is really what creates like the most positive result. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. And that's where, and then this is where the second big life moment, which is where a lot of the challenge came from, mm-hmm. is that when I was three years old, my father, who was a singer-songwriter, he had a band called Dreamer. He played several instruments and he decided to leave to pursue his dream of music in Nashville. And while there got just caught up in cocaine and drugs and, you know, using things and running away from himself and not really facing his own demons. And that led him to get behind the wheel of a car under the influence. And the car he was in went off a highway overpass under a truck. His best friend who was getting married was killed instantly at the scene in the passenger seat, which is, I always think like, it was a similar accident. My mom went under a truck, except because her car seat was down, she survived. Whoa. But because he, his car seat was up, he died. And uh, my father was driving both times. And so he was thrown to the back of the seat because he wasn't wearing a seatbelt, apparently. And then he never regained full consciousness. So he was in a coma for a year. And Mm -hmm. then he was basically in a vegetative state until I was 12 years old is when he he died. And so that was, you know, from three to 12 years old, those are those like primary childhood years. And I remember one of my first memories is actually I was at my grandmother's house and he called and he was in Nashville. So this was like weeks before his accident. And he said to me, um, no matter what, no, I'll always love you. And I remember that. And you were 11. No, I was three. Oh, you're three. This is one of my first memories. Oh, wow. And I like remember talking to him. I remember the coil telephone wire and wrapping around my little fingers. I remember I was playing Yahtzee with my grandmother. Um, I remember it's almost as if I can look down and see the scene. And so um, I, I remember that conversation and just like, no matter what, I'll always love you. And it wasn't until I was adult that I can look back at that and think it was almost as if he knew something was going to happen. Sure. It seemed sort of, I don't know. And so- Or like that moment where your higher self steps in and words just come out and because you feel them and, you know, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so then the accident happened and then, yeah, so I got the news when I was, when I was 12 um, that he had finally passed, which actually I felt really relieved because he was in this in-between space space for so long. And strangely, he had once said to my mom, my mom told me that if anything ever happened to him, never like keep him on machines, which is like, who says that? So it was like these, you know, these moments I just found very interesting. Um, So I thought you said he was in the state for a year, but he was in the state from when you were three to 12. So three to 12. So he was in a coma for a year. Oh, okay, okay. Came out of the coma. So like four to 12, he was basically in a pretty vegetative state in a hospital. And was he communicative or not? Not really. Not really. Um, I mean, he could like, you know, if I would, I would say like, I'm Amber. And then I would switch seats and he would go, Amber, and point to me. Uh, And we could sort, but not basically brain dead. Right, right, right. Wow. Yeah. And there's, I mean, you can imagine that situation, like all of us. And that's one of the human superpowers that we have is the ability to project yourself, but to actually know it. Mm. And to like actually like feel it somatically to have what the Greeks call gnosis, where mm-hmm. you actually like get to truly experience that. None of us have any fucking idea, you know. Maybe there is some people who've had something similar, but that's a really interesting, interesting and challenging element. That, uh, as I was saying earlier, that combination of you know that radical love, acceptance, belief mm-hmm. plus a significant challenge, you know, because if you didn't have the radical love, acceptance, belief on your mother's side, and you had that significant challenge, Mm -hmm. 
we may not be sitting here talking uh, about this. Not. No, it may probably be a totally not. different, totally different path. But all right. So what did that, you know, what were the effects of that? Like, what was the challenge that you had to receive? And then how have you seen that work through mm-hmm. since then? Well, I think the gift of that experience, and I can say now that it was a gift, was that it had me be so curious. I wanted to understand humans, why we do what we do, our motivations, why he left, what was motivating him to, you know, use drugs. I just, I I became so curious about the human experience. Mm -hmm. And that led me to start studying psychology when I was 11. And just, I feel like my my mom was very um, outer make things happen, entrepreneur, builder. And I became so curious about the inner journey. And I think that was as a result of his death. And then what I realized in my mid-20s was, you know, there was a lot of grief that I never let myself feel or really sit with or experience, um, which came to light when I was in a series of relationships where I kept dating men who I knew were going to leave. And that you know, just had no interest in commitment, but I would all in and I would get hurt over and over again. And mm-hmm. then I would pause and ask myself, what, what am I recreating? And that's when I realized that I had subconsciously created a story that men I love will leave me and that, you know, men are unsafe also. And so I would get myself in situations where I would relive that story. And what, and, and I'm interested to hear your opinion what is the motivation? Because this is this is not just you who does this. Mm-hmm. We recreate scenarios of trauma in our head, you know, so and relive them. Like, why? What is the human compulsion to do that? In your opinion, it's what we know. Mm-hmm. It's what we our nervous system was has been wired to remember. And for me, I feel like it almost felt safer. Because it was scarier to think that a a man would stay and learn to see all of me than leaving and just seeing part of me, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because, you know, relationships and commitments require a level of vulnerability and really taking off the mask. And I think at that point in my life, I still was wearing so many masks. And so it was just a part of the narrative of who I thought I was and who I thought I could be at that point. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like we, you know, if our purpose here is to learn, which I mm. do believe is our primary purpose, honestly, to learn and enjoy the experience and help others do the same. It's almost like we'll subconsciously put ourselves in the same position to get over the thing that we're yes. not over yet. Yes. Like, oh, I'm not over that abandonment of my father, even though, you know, this happened in an accident, but whatever. I'm not over that yet. So let me recreate situations yes. so that finally I can like get beyond that, learn the lesson of you know, letting go mm-hmm. of those kind of feelings and accepting and being okay with the temporariness of all relationship, which really is something that we all have to deal with because time will actually break all friendships and break all partnerships in the physical somatic sense, at least. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so that's just our kind of higher self saying like, okay, didn't time, learn to, learn time, time <laughs> to learn the lesson. Time to learn the lesson. Let's recreate it. Yes, you yes, know? totally. Yeah. So then, as you were saying earlier, though, that pattern shifted um, a, a bit, quite a bit, when you were drank your first ayahuasca. Which, so that was a year ago, but I think I became aware of the stories probably around 23, 24. So that's almost a decade ago. And so, so awareness I, first. Awareness first. And I feel like I started slowly chipping away, whether it was 
writing and journaling and using that as this cathartic process to understand the stories I was telling myself or therapy or, you know, healers of all kinds. But I think where the deep rewiring happened was when I drank the ayahuasca and I met this incredible woman in, um, she lives in New Mexico and she, it was a one-on-one experience with her. Mm -hmm. And she started with just energy work and it was all about just presencing in the body. And then she sent me on a uh, vision quest where I went to go meet different animals. And of course I met three horses and it was just like, they came, these three horses came and horses are such a powerful symbol for me. So that felt like they made me think of purity and strength. And so I felt like they were there as sort of teachers, like we're watching over you and this experience is what it felt like. And then when I actually went into the journey, I was lying down, eyes closed. And this closed. was before, this was before, before drinking the, ayahuasca. Before I drank the ayahuasca. So what was the process of her vision quest that actually facilitated you having that visionary experience without the plant medicine? So she, yeah, she was like, when I arrived, she's like, the medicine begins now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and, I, was, and I definitely agree with that. Yeah. Where she like guided me to, I can drop into source in about three seconds, which she guided me to do, which is just about connecting to my womb. And it was as if she trained my body to be able to tune in and just anchor. And you had been working on that prior to seeing her or did she kind of really unlock that? She just really unlocked that in like 10 minutes. I was like, wow. who is this woman? Wow. <laughs> and people are like, can you describe how she did that? I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I can just describe my ability to just be like, okay, I'm there. I don't have a womb. What should I do? <laughs> well, do but I, it's the same area. That? It's the same chakra. Same area. Yeah. Okay. So if you just like, just put your energy what there. What is in there for me? <laughs> what, what, what replaces? Ryan, you tell us. What replaces that place where a woman has a womb? <laughs> Intestines. Okay. <laughs> but it's it's almost like the movie Avatar where I feel like, I don't know, it's as if I'm connected to the planets and I'm yeah. connected to the earth. Yeah. And I just then feel like as a are, we are. All right, so you connect into that space. Yeah. And there's so much. When I talk to powerful women and who are really in touch with their magic, I mean, so much is deeply rooted in that chakra, Mm -hmm. and then which can be embodied by the womb, that place where life comes through. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's understandable for sure. But yeah, so it's that's cool. And I think all of us can actually pay attention to that part of our Mm -hmm. body. And know that that's like a that root, you know, that like area of us that's like those first and second chakras, that like core essential primordial part of our being is the thing that is most radically connected with all of the other kind of physical energy that exists out there. Totally. And then as it moves up, emotional energy, mm-hmm. and then all the way up to spiritual energy mm-hmm. up the higher sides. But, you know, that, that kind of, you know, the full spectrum. It's like where it's the gradient. You know, mm-hmm. where that, that real visceral energy starts lower and then it gets more ethereal as it travels up the uh, travels up the body. Yeah. And I even, as an artist and creative, I feel ideas there first before I even know what they are. Yeah. But I'm like, ooh, I feel it growing in my, it feels like it's growing in my womb, the idea. And so like my book I knew was here first. And I'm like, okay, it's, I feel the book now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Time for it to come through and I'm going to be the channel of it now. Yeah. So that's really, it's interesting. That's cool. All right. So she, she has you go through this practice and then what sends you off into the, into the wilderness? So or? I'm fasting then. And then she sends me out. How long were you wilderness. fasting? Mm, from the moment, I can't remember to be honest, maybe 12 hours. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then about 12 hours at the point I went to the vision quest. Yeah. And then that's where she's like, go to the land. She lives in the middle of Nature. Beautiful nature out there. Yeah. Go to the land and see what you find. You know, my first vision quest was north of Santa Fe. Oh, okay. 
Oh, cool. Interestingly. Yeah. Yeah. Probably a different person, but. Mm. Um, okay. Yeah. So out in the land. Go to the land, see what you find. So it was freezing out. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm thinking there's no way I'm going to find anything right now. It's so cold. But I went out and I explored and I walked around and just allowed really my womb to guide me and follow where I felt pulled. And that's when I came across these three horses. Mm. You so you literally saw three horses. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Did not imagine. Oh wow! I thought I was like wow. <laughs> in real life. <laughs> in real life, there was three horses. Unless that I was fasting so much, but no, they were real. Okay, yeah. So real life, three horses. Yeah, I mean, not like where they came up, and I, I really wanted. I was like calling for them to come up so I could sure. touch them, but I was like, well, maybe it's not wild horses. I don't know. Wow. <laughs> so I just saw them in the distance, and they stopped, and I stopped, and we sort of had a moment of connection, and. You know, I I felt myself anchored in the earth. I felt them anchored in the earth. We were looking at each other. And but a horse has always been a symbol for me. I mean, I love riding horses. Yeah. They're just like such a character of strength um, for me. And so saw the three horses. And then that was my signal of okay, my vision quest is over. And so I went back and told her about the horses. And she we unpacked that a bit, but she just no one apparently no one's ever seen horses that came to do um, a journey with her and it's been hundreds of people. So I thought that was interesting. Really interesting. Yeah. And so from there, then uh, then the journey began. Mm-hmm. And she had she was a musician, so she also channeled music. And so while I was on the vision quest and doing whatever, she then, once she met me and felt my energy, created music around the five-hour experience. No big deal. <laughs> I'll just create this five-hour musical journey yeah. while you're out wandering the land for a few hours. Yeah. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, all right, so cup of ayahuasca from, do you know if it was Hawaiian or do you know if it was Peruvian or, you know, Colombian or and any other details on that? It was just kind of, here's the cup. Details I don't recall. It's thick, it's brown, yeah. spicy, yeah, earthy. Earthy, yep. Real earthy. Yep, real earthy. And then drank the cup. And then she put a blindfold on me, I believe, or put a pillow over my eyes. And then I lay, lay down um, flat on a couch. And about 15 minutes in, I mean, even the first song that came on, the music was so, I mean, so special that I felt like I immediately dropped into an experience. Mm-hmm. And then I'd say within 15 minutes, I started to feel the effects of the medicine. Yeah. And then the the experience for me was highly visual, highly visual, where, I mean, I saw ex-boyfriends. I saw my father consistently throughout. I saw um, men who, it was interesting, it was a pattern of men who I've been triggered by. And it was as if they were coming back for me to understand what they were a messenger for. And the sense of the safety, the lack of safety I was projecting onto them and where that was really coming from. Mm. And then it was like these moments of my mantra going into it, which came to me actually on the vision quest was trust, surrender, release. And so the entire time- as good as mantra gets when you're uh, (laughs) talking about ayahuasca. Yeah. And so there were times when it was like so dark that I could feel the darkness filling, it felt like every cell of my body. And so I would say, you know, trust, surrender, release, and I would breathe and then it would pass and I would feel this explosive amount of ecstasy and joy and then it would go back into darkness. And it was like this riveting wave of just- so such a spectrum of emotion. Mm. And I remember, so I just rode that journey for a while, witnessed my father, you know, playing music. And it was just, it was this wild journey. And then I remember a moment where she came over and I opened my eyes and she's like, how are you doing? I was like, I'm, you know, wow. And she says to me, I can see the rewiring. Do you see the rewiring? And I was like, yes, I see the rewiring. 
And so about five hours, you know, five hours after the journey, I could feel it start to close um, or the medicine wearing off. And um, as I began to wake up, she was like, are you ready to transition into what's next? And I was, and my hands felt like my great, 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 very old grandmother's hands where I looked down at my hands and they looked like they were a thousand years old. Mm. And the entire earth was enveloping me. And I had to like pull my hands out of the earth. And as I did that, sparks of light were shooting out of my hands. And the healer witnessed this as well. And she's like, wow, your hands are healing hands. And so we just sort of like looked, I just looked at my hands for a while and realized the power of this vehicle of communication. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that closed. And then we transitioned into, tell me about your experience. And then that's when I really, you know, the revelation for me was in seeing all of these male figures and in doing the rewiring that was happening is that for a long time, my story was men I love will leave me or men are unsafe. And what came so clear to me in that journey is that I will never leave me and I am safe inside myself. And so long as I have that rootedness, then everything else is sort of a dream. Yeah. Yeah. Everything else is play, mm-hmm. you know, and as it's originally designed, that ability to laugh and play and interact and because we are safe, mm-hmm. that eternal part of ourself that, you know, in the, I think it's a Rumi quote that says that which strikes the shell does not harm the pearl. Like this body is just the shell, but the pearl that's inside our life force, our energy, that infinite spirit that we have is truly invincible and whole and needs nothing, Mm -hmm. you know, and is complete. And when you realize that, then you're like, boom, back into the shell. (laughs) Oh, okay, cool. Where are the other oysters? Let's fucking play. Let's, you know, let's enjoy this, enjoy the tide, enjoy the water, enjoy the, enjoy all the things that we can enjoy as humans, but knowing, doing that from a place of abundance and satiation Mm -hmm. and lack of need. And without all of these things that we think we have to do to fill ourselves constantly, but to know that we're whole, it's yeah. fucking freedom. And freedom, freedom, complete freedom. Freedom is, that's that's happiness. Mm-hmm. Like freedom is happiness. It's freedom from all the things that would, you know, take you down those delusions of fear and sadness and all of these other areas that you go. But like freedom is really the goal. Mm-hmm. And that sounds like it got you a lot closer to freedom. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, made, I mean, it's just, I feel like it felt like shackles had been removed. Yeah. And I was able to step more firmly in my power yeah. because I wasn't looking for it outside of me. Yeah. I wasn't looking for the the validation and the approval in ways that I, I had before. And even relationships with men where I experienced friction, where I was projecting that story onto, I went and had a conversation with them after and just told them about the experience and the aha moment. And it ended up being a really beautiful moment of healing for both of us because sure. they I was also a character and I was a pawn in their story as well. Sure. And so we were able to acknowledge how we had been playing pawns for each other and what the lesson and learning was there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how you were using each other as means as well as as ends, you know, using each other for a purpose. Oh, I'm using you to get the validation that I need to make myself feel this way about myself as well as like, oh, well, I do love you too. And I want you to be. So just having that awareness, mm-hmm. the awareness of like, when you're acting in truth authentically from abundance where you've divorced yourself from the expectation of any kind of response or reply, you're just doing it because it's you and it's what you want to do. Like 
that is a different type of thing than what most of us have in relationship, which is some form of, well, I'm going to do this, but I'm expecting Mm -hmm. this and you better give me this because I need this. And if I don't get this, then I'm not going to feel the same. And then it's just, it can get kind of really messy. So acknowledging all of that and being like, oh yeah, I was doing this. I was kind of using you because, you know, I needed to feel better about myself and I needed something. Mm -hmm. I know you you might even use me because I was young and super hot and whatever, (laughs) whatever the thing is, you know, but like getting that state of acknowledgement is like, okay, yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're just all learning, mm-hmm. you know, like high five to learning. <laughs> Love you yeah. still always, but you know, <laughs> see you later. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Where do you still feel that you personally aren't free? Mm. Where, where are the shackles that still lie in your psyche or in your heart or in your life? Hmm. I'll be really real. So there's still something around. It's funny on the cab ride here, I felt a little nervous Mm -hmm. and I felt nervous going to entrepreneur Mm -hmm. and I felt nervous going, I was a mentor at this event called 212. And I rarely feel nervous for interviews anymore. Feel, um, particularly if it's like a space of all women or a space where like intuition, which I, you, I feel like you really hold space for the divine feminine and intuition and all that. I feel very actually safe with you. But I still notice that there's this, there's something there still, which is interesting now that we're talking about this pattern, about like the hyper-masculine male that I'm afraid I'm not seen or valued. So there's something and it's, I was trying to, I was actually unpacking it in the car ride. Like, what is that? And I noticed it just, yeah, coming alive with you where there's like a little bit of energy in my body. Mm -hmm. I'm like, hmm, what is that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so, so something, if there's a fear of not being seen or valued, then there must be some way in which you don't believe yourself to be valuable enough from that perspective. Like somehow that lens, you know, allows you to, you know, causes you to question yourself. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, the interesting question then is, well, why does that lens cause that when other lenses don't? Mm -hmm. And like, so what do you think about yourself? That's, I think, where it gets really interesting. And Mm -hmm. I think that's exactly right. Like you notice a sensation, uh Mm uh-huh, an interesting feeling here. Let's start asking questions. Like, what are the correlations? Why? Like, what am I feeling? What is the emotion? When is it coming up? Why? Mm -hmm. Why is it coming up? Mm -hmm. That's where it gets interesting. And do you have any insight into that? Like, what what is it about that archetype that causes that perhaps extra need to be seen or didn't be valued by that element? I don't know yet. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, but it's, yeah, it's like a not enoughness thing. And mm-hmm. the 212, like the 212 experience, um, I almost called three times to cancel being a mentor. <laughs> I was like, what value can I add? I also felt like I was checking off a women's box. I felt like, because a lot of what I've been studying is emotions. Yeah. And so it's like, I'm afraid people won't be ready for that. And so, or that I'm not credible enough or worthy enough. You know, there's all those like not enough stories, Uh which don't come, you know, they don't come up that often, but when they do, it's like, oh, like I'm like brought back to that again. Uh And so. Well, I think as you're saying, like the, like true feminine, divine feminine wisdom has the intuition, the sight to see, Mm -hmm. you know, so like. It doesn't really, all of that stuff doesn't matter because it sounds like you have that deeper belief and like, oh, like I know who I am. Mm -hmm. You know, I can find horses with my womb. (laughs) 
like, like, yeah, I, I can do some shit. You know yeah. what I mean? And like uh, trusting that someone who's tapped into the feminine, their intuition can be like, oh, I see you, Amber. Yeah. You know, and so whatever words fall away or if the citation of a study isn't coming to the forefront of your mind, like it doesn't matter. Like mm. you can be seen in that way. But in that hyper masculine, super rational, brain focused yeah. thing. It could be like, well, where's your sources? Okay, well, where's your credibility? Do you have a degree? Well, blah, blah. And this line of questioning mm-hmm. that you could, and this can happen, men and women can do this. This is mm-hmm. not really gender specific. We're talking about the archetype of masculine yes. and feminine, but the archetype of that hyper rational side and then hyper rational way of knowing things. Um, I could see where that could trigger something from you. But I think the solution, not that I'm your fucking coach or anything, but like, because I do this myself. (laughs) The solution is is in this genuine trusting Mm. that your way of knowing Mm. is enough Mm -hmm. and that your way of knowing is as good as the other ways of knowing. It doesn't mean to shut your eyes and close off to those other ways of knowing, but to really believe in in your way. And Mm. no matter what the critique comes, you know, be able to smile and say, that's great. You know, I'm glad that there's these people who have this knowledge. I'm, I welcome all the learning from them, but I also have my way of knowing, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then be like, well, well, that's just sort of subjective. And it's like, <laughs> and you can just smile and just say, I see you really want a hug. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like, whenever mm-hmm. you're ready for a hug, like, let me know. But otherwise our discussion here is pretty much not going to go anywhere, you know? So that, that to me is what makes the most sense is just you as you trust build that trust. Trust my knowing. Yeah, just yeah. trust your knowing and trust that their line of critique from their perspective. And their worldview. Yeah, and their worldview and what they think is important. Like, okay, I, yeah, I respect that. And there is some value in that, but you are clearly not respecting my worldview mm. and the knowing that I have. Mm-hmm. Because everybody, man, that, you know, I'm, I deal with the top PhDs and top doctors and scientists and neuroscientists, psychologists, whatever. And then I also deal with people who are deeply on the medicine path. And then I deal with people who are just normal, regular old folks. And everybody has something that's totally radically unique to teach. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, and sometimes the people who are more experientially knowledgeable, I find more personally interesting than Mm. the people who are more like, knowledgeable through the literature. Now, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that someone can't truly advance your understanding of something by their mastery of a subject based in clinical research and scientific study. Like, I fucking love that. Yeah. But there's something to learn of some, from anybody who's gone through something significant, whatever that significant thing is, and they've pushed themselves to keep learning and not avert their eyes and pretend like, oh yeah, nothing to see here, nothing to see here. And as long as they've had that kind of self-awareness journey, fuck everybody's a teacher. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. No doubt. Trust my knowing. Trust your knowing. Trust my experiential path. Yeah. yeah. It's funny because my I create characters around my different voices in my head. Mm-hmm. And one of them is my imposter syndrome or one of my imposter syndrome characters. I talked about an entrepreneur, which is Doc. Yeah. Of course, Doc that story, but yeah, is the exactly. Har- Harvard PhD who's yeah. like, what source do you have on that? You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I'm like, shut up, Doc. But I'm also like, no, you're useful. I can collaborate with people yeah. like you, but I don't need to be you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's uh we there's so many ideas about and expectations about who we should be. Mm-hmm. And we internalize these things. And we like I have so many people who are like trying to push out and like sing their song, you know, serve their medicine, like share their voice, find their power. There's a million ways you can say that thing, but I like saying sing their song, mm. you know, and they're doing it and they'll have these kind of self-limiting beliefs around why they 
you know, why they shouldn't sing their song or like yeah. what, what is, what doesn't make them worthy of singing their song and what all, and it's, it's really interesting, you know, that we'll have all of these things that are there, but actually when you just start singing, then all you have to do is just look at the result of your song, mm. you know, or, or like it, so it's, so instead of like judging like, oh man, I was a little pitchy in that spot. Meanwhile, the audience is in tears, right? <laughs> like my fiance has this, you know, has, there's a time where she can sing to me. And it's so, such a powerful, impactful moment for me where I'll like be in tears, mm. you know, but she'll be like, oh, you know, I was a little pitchy in that spot. I was like, what? <laughs> didn't notice. I didn't notice. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and I think we all have these things where it's just like, the more we let go mm. and just surrender to our song mm-hmm. and realize that it's not going to be perfect, then you are going to stutter and you're going to fumble. And there's going to be things that you forget, but just fucking keep sending it. Yeah. And when the result, you know, let the overall results, not that one or two detractors are hated, but the overall results, you know, of the receiving of your song mm. speak for itself. Mm-hmm. But I think that's a cool thing that you do that you actually like allow yourself to become the observer mm-hmm. and be like, oh, this part of my mind, oh, look at Doc, my yeah. self-critical, overanalyzing part of myself. Logical, yeah. The logical, look at that, look at Doc go. Yeah. You know, look at that part of me go and try to antagonize myself. Totally. And then I've got Grace, the 30-something British woman who hails from London and wants everything <laughs> in a very neat and tidy box. And <laughs> if I make a mistake, she'll have a bloody fit. <laughs> yeah. And she shows up a lot when I'm writing. So in my book writing process, she was very present. That's That sentence is terrible. You can't say that. You can't share that. People are going to judge you. And eventually I had to be like, okay, Grace, what is it that you want? Yeah. And Grace is like, I just want a masterpiece. And I'm like, okay, how, do master, how are masterpieces made? She's like, well, through a lot of trial and error and things go well and things don't work. And I was like, exactly. So I need to make a lot of shitty drafts and get messy before I can create something great. Mm -hmm. So can you go get a manicure pedicure (laughs) while I get to writing? And maybe I'll invite you into the editor process if you are nice. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And she's like, okay, fair enough. And so, I mean, this is a practice that I intuitively stumbled on because I, to make sense of all of these inner critic voices, I began to name them and build the character of them and figure out what they looked like. And then I would talk to them and negotiate with them. Yeah. And I realized oftentimes they actually, you know, they're not, they're not all enemies. They actually tend to have my best interests in mind. Mm. It's funny when you look at it on the macro, like you think this is, you know, this is obviously a really valuable practice for yourself. And I think it's a valuable practice universally, but I think you look at a lot of religions and a lot of the gods that were created mm. were externalizations of certain patterns of judgment that were all internal, you know? So even the old Old Testament God is like the ultimate father figure. It's like Zeus or some one of these other things. It's like the the dad who, you know, won't give you the keys to the car, but if you drive it well, he'll be kind of proud. But, you know, like this over kind of overbearing judgmental father figure who doles out conditional love. Yeah. And we project that and like, mm-hmm. God. You know, and really that's just like the superego, like the part of our brain that's constantly watching over the self and we've deified it. Mm. <laughs> and then and then now everything's kind of gotten squirrely to a certain degree from there. But it's it's interesting that, you know, when we just can have the awareness and recognize that these all of these parts of ourself are in there. Like we all have a grace, we all have yeah. a doc, we all have all of these other little characters. Totally. But when you're aware, you can be like, okay. I guess see you. Okay. I see you. I see you hanging out. <laughs> it's all good. Thanks for trying to keep me safe. <laughs> yeah. He's trying to protect me. Yeah. And no, and send love. <laughs> yeah, like, send exactly. Send love. love. Like, I love you, Grace. Yeah. Oh, I love you, Doc. I know you're just trying to make sure that my sources are good and, and everything's good. And you're, you know, there's going to be people who are mostly docs, mm-hmm. you know, and you'll help 
it'll help me think from their perspective and be ready for their questions and be ready to receive them and see them you know, internalized in other people. Totally. Be able to see that too. Mm. Yeah, that's actually something my fiance and I do is I know many of his characters and he uh-huh. knows many of mine. So he'll know Ella is my inner child, who's the one that's still, it's the abandonment. So she's the one that I have to hold close and say, it's okay, we're safe. And I literally imagine myself holding her. And so he'll know when Ella's showing up. I'll know when one of his characters is showing up and how that can take over. And just through that awareness, and sometimes our characters will communicate with each other because there's unmet needs between the two of the characters, not us as a full human, but these two specific parts of us have unmet needs and those needs need to be addressed somehow. And so they'll talk and have conversations. And it's it's been huge in our relationship. It's really interesting because... I've recognized that there's, you know, the very human side and then there's the consciousness side, which Mm. you could call the divine side or whatever. That's just all language, just all ideas. But there's the higher self and then the very physical, visceral self, Mm -hmm. you know. And I think for a while I was trying to project myself into the higher self and in the conscious. No, that's what I am. I'm a conscious being, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And I was just leaving the human on the shores of the riverbank, just crying and kicking and screaming. Mm. And that wasn't an effective strategy. You can't bypass and go to one side and not recognize the voices that are in there. Your Emma, your whoever, your other human element, all these aspects. You have to recognize that. Well, then I was like, okay, 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 I can't leave the human behind. So then I jump and dove into the human and I like was fully indulgent of mm. all the human's delusions and fears and whatever and like exacerbated that. And I was like, yeah, okay, 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 balance. <laughs> You know, like observe, feel the thing mm. of the human, recognize that you are part that, but you're also part your consciousness and your divinity and kind of flatten everything out where nothing is ignored, mm-hmm. but nothing is like overindulged. You know, you don't need to spend a day as Grace or a day as Doc and yes. just like fully immerse yourself and create a library for him to live in. It's like, no, 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 that's too far. You know, like be aware, acknowledge, acknowledge those parts yourself. It can express from those parts like, well, my human is feeling a little jealous. My human mm-hmm. is feeling a little hurt. You know, but my divine self is my higher self is so happy for you. Mm-hmm, and just mm-hmm. and that's where I'm in contention. I'm in this, you know, these parts of myself are not in agreement. And then you try to find those balances and compromises and reconciliations between everything, like you did in your negotiation with with Grace. And then you can find the harmony of integration. Mm-hmm. But you have to listen. I quietly listen to all of those elements, all those things and start asking questions like, hey, hi, how are you doing? Why? What's going on? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I love what you're saying there because it's, I think so often why people suffer is because they believe they are their thoughts and their feelings. Mm -hmm. And until there's distance between themselves and all these different characters, they can't even see what's at play. And, you know, I'm experiencing fear. So I'm an afraid person or I felt anxiety. I must be anxious. And we're over-personalizing these different thoughts and feelings that are just coming in like weather patterns. And actually ancient Greeks, it was Helianism, they believed that emotions would come to visit you. Mm. And so it's like, oh, anger is visiting me right now. What message does anger have for me? Or, oh, the muse is visiting me. Yay, we get to make something. What right. am I going to make with the muse? Okay, bye, muse. And I just think there's there's something so healthy about that perspective of them coming and going as different vis- visitors and here with a message. If we can pause and say, hey, you know, what's the message? What can we create together? I like that image too. And I think what you can learn as well with skill is you can learn when you need to invite them in and just allow them to stay and sit for a while. And when you can greet them at the door with a hug 
and say, oh, I know you want to come visit, but I'm really not free right now, you yeah. know, but I love you and I feel you. Totally. So we can hang out here at the door, at the door jam for a little while and, you know, until we're ready to part a ways and catch up. But I think there's a, there's a, you can't ignore mm-hmm. for sure. And I think reckon and being the observer and being the person who's answering the door, mm-hmm. you know, to these emotions. It's totally. what like Sam Harris talks about in waking up. It's like the class and if what Buddhism talks about, what everybody talks about, all the spiritual practices. It's like that being the observer, being the the thinker of the thoughts, not the thoughts, mm-hmm. you know. And but yeah, but then learning to control your emotions. This is where like Don Miguel Ruiz, when you go to his workshop, read his books, he talks about the mastery of being able to see the emotions, but not paddle for the wave, you know, just like let that wave pass or like greet the emotions. Oh, here comes anger at the door. Mm -hmm. Like I see you. Oh, I see anger. Oh, I know what you want to do. Anger, anger. You want to give me courage to stand up for myself Mm -hmm. or, oh, anger. You want to create distance. So I'm not afraid of that thing that I might lose. So you're causing, I I see, I know what you want to do here, anger. And I love you for that. I know you're just trying to protect me, but I'm gonna hug you and say goodbye. Yes, you know, yes, and yes. that's finally like, fuck, fuck. Sorry, <laughs> finally to start figuring that out. Because mm-hmm. I used to just, they used to be knocking at the door. And I'd be like, nope, 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 yeah. I don't know. Nope, not going to answer. Not going to answer. You got to answer the door. You don't have to let them in, but you got to answer the door. You got to like recognize what's coming mm-hmm. and be like, okay, yeah, yeah, there you are. <laughs> Here we are at the door. But you do have a choice whether you invite them in. Because sometimes when you invite them in, they just start breaking shit. Totally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. I used to, yeah, that's even how I came into this work because they would knock and I would tell them to go away. Yeah. And then I realized that that level of suppression was just going to create so much toxicity in my life and in my body. Yeah. But yeah, I love it. It's so important that that idea of boundaries and knowing that like you can say hi, but they don't need to come in. You get to decide. You get to decide. Yeah. And like there is an obligation to say hi. But mm-hmm. there's no obligation to invite them. They in. come in just yeah, like with yeah, exactly. humans just that like we meet. Humans, yeah. We're hi. I acknowledge you in your humanness. Right. But that doesn't mean that you're <laughs> going to come hang out with me all night. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I think that makes sense. So the title of your book, choose wonder mm-hmm. over worry. Um, wonder. Mm. Like what? If, what if? Do you have things that you find have? drawn you to a greater state of wonder you know because i've certainly experienced myself being able to access wonder which can be expressed as love or can be expressed as you know awe and wonder kind of the same thing but but what is it what is it for you that has allowed you to and what are you teaching about choosing wonder mm-hmm. and being able to access that magnificent feeling and, and aspect of humanity mm. I remember at Entrepreneur, I love that you said when we were asked about play and you said play is a mindset. I can invite play into anything. And that was really the realization that I had that I could be in wonder and it was just a choice. And that is, you know, A, wondering about why am I having this feeling? Where is this coming from? You know, both the internal journey as well as, hmm, I feel drawn to this. I'm really curious about this. Or I feel a connection with this person. I wonder what that means. Or, you know, really I see wonder is the the gateway to creativity, imagination, and creating anything. Mm -hmm. And so for me, wonder was this beautiful dance between the inner and outer worlds. And it allowed me to dive into the depths of my own being as well as explore the world outside of me. Yeah. And when I started really doing the sort of characterization work, how it all began is I first noticed worry, the worry voice in my head, which was the, who are you to do this? Will will they think of you? Are you good enough? And that that critical voice. And once I actually 
began to wonder and get curious about worry. That's why I realized wonder was also a character. And so it was as if I had these two characters in my head. They were the initial two, worry and wonder. Wonder was more, more my curious inner guide and higher self in a way, where worry was the scared, afraid, but also sometimes looking out and trying to protect me, mm. part of me. And so wonder became this, yeah, this vehicle to explore so much more of myself in the world. Yeah. Is love a character for you as well then? If, if there are positive things, is that like, or, or do you have a different view about love and mm. its role and mm-hmm. how that, and how that actually manifests as part of the human, human self? I would say, so my love character, her name is Mama Jenny. <laughs> and she's like my inner Oprah. <laughs> and she is just even more than love. Because I think love is almost the combination of all of them, the light uh-huh. and the dark and yeah. the acceptance and embrace yeah. of all. And Mama Jenny is more just like radical self-acceptance, uh-huh. like just so compassionate, so loving, and just always there to give me a, hu- a warm hug. But no one character is named as love. I think, yeah, all of them are love. Yeah, I think that love is the, and I think that's a, that's one of the misidentifications about love. Mm. And I think we've really kind of misdefined love for a long time because I think love is the fundamental substrate. Mm-hmm. When you actually strip away all the other things and all the voices get quiet and everything integrates back to the unicity of mm-hmm. self, which mm-hmm. is back mm-hmm. to the unicity of source, it is love, you know? And so for me, all the other emotions, for sure, I could definitely characterize like certain certain elements of those. And I obviously, I haven't done them the, the way that you're describing, but I certainly could. You know, yeah. I remember my first Aboga journey, I was recognized that there was three main elements. There was mind boy, mm. which was like my ego mm. and my th- thoughts and my brain and, and all of those aspects of my identity. And it was like a child that was all sugar charged and was always worried about things and paranoid and like trying to figure things out and strategize and wanted to be a big boy and wanted to get everybody to say what a big boy you are. You know, Mm. like that's what mind boy always wants. And then there was mud body, which was like my physical self, the Mm. animal, the, you know, human homo sapiens that, that I was embodied in and all of the instincts and impulses and physicality of that. And then there was my higher self, my consciousness. You know, which was the true eternal travel, like the identification of who I really, who I really am. And so that was like a big moment for me where I was able to kind of see, okay, well, I'm at least three parts. And sometimes they're in harmony and sometimes they're disparate. My mind is in control, you know, Mm. taking over the helm of the starship and, you know, my consciousness is receded and sometimes my consciousness can step forward. And and then the body is communicating in all the ways that the body can, sometimes sending signals through mind boy, through the brain, it's little sugar rushes or whatever the things are going on. And that was like the first moment where I started to have some semblance of self-awareness and some semblance of control. But then, you know, to collapse all that, so as you draw these apart, as soon as everything comes back into that, the center, mm-hmm. comes back into the point, into the present moment where there aren't the thoughts and they aren't the ability to even project because you're so present that you're not in that part of your brain, you're just there, mm. then you're in love mm. and you're back to like, back to source. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of the a little bit of the hero's journey. Like, okay, like pull it all apart, pull it all apart so that we can become aware of it until eventually you can collapse it back mm-hmm. together yeah. you know to the to the single source and just be love mm. 
mm-hmm. know, and I've seen that kind of that kind of arc because I yeah. think that is the the backdrop mm. of life of who we are. Beautiful, yeah, I love that. Yeah, and um, one thing I realize is that worry was also love, fear was also love, shame was also love. It was just its defense mechanisms. Yeah. And so once I realized that even the shame, that was my way of protecting myself in a situation. I felt ashamed because I was, that was my, you know, defenses. But beneath that, at the core, at the root was love. And beneath the fear and the protection was love. Hmm. Recognizing that. Yeah. I mean, there's a, my, one of my spiritual teachers, Paul Selig, in, uh, you know, he when he describes God and he describes love, you know, you just—it's all things. It includes mm-hmm. all of the elements. Like you can't pull this out and say, "Though this is not of God. This is the this is divine, and this is the money. This is not. It's all infused with divinity. Even the de- denial of divinity, which with our belief we can power into on some dimension a, a real." thing like denying the love that's there mm-hmm. you know by creating it with our mental manifestation we can create this delusional reality where that's outside of love but really it's not and mm. i think that's a beautiful point that you're making like just because the animal has spikes and scales doesn't mean the spikes and scales aren't part of the animal which is love the whole animal is love mm-hmm. and that's our that's the part of our psyche sometimes it spikes and scales and venom and all of these different elements but still that's part of the animal and then the animal's substrate the very core nature of it is love yes well that takes the pressure off (laughs) (laughs) that takes the pressure off a lot that takes the self-judgment off Mm. and just to be able to recognize that okay this is all love and all love's protection and this is the stegosaurus version and has extra plates and some weird things on its tail and uh but it's still love, yeah. even the plates, even the horns. You know, mm. the tip of the rhino's horn is the rhino, and the rhino is love. Mm-hmm. And so then I think the question we can come back to with ourselves is my love for myself, conditional or unconditional? And this, this came to me. I had a mentor. I was frustrated in my relationship around certain things, and my way of trying to handle that was I was trying to control so that I could create the outcome that I wanted. And I went on this walk with the mentor, and I'm telling him, about my frustrations and how things should be my way and da-da-da-da-da. And he just stops me and he says, is your love for Farhad conditional or unconditional? And that was like a moment for me where I realized that in some way I was creating conditions. And it was only because I was creating conditions with myself. Yeah, it's And he was just, it's always a mirror. And so that had me realize, whoo, what are all the ways in which my love for myself is conditional and how do I step into unconditional love? I think, uh, I think a lot of people think that you know, I mean, we all basically we learn conditional love from everybody. You learn it on every time you post on social media, yeah. every time in your family, you've learned in relationship, you learn it in sports, you learn it from your coach, you learn it from fuck. It's fucking everywhere, right? <laughs> Except for rare exceptions. You mm-hmm. know, like my mother was one of those rare exceptions, mm. and I've you know, I've told this story before, and I've written about this, but you know, now that I've gotten a certain degree of notoriety, people know who I am, and and uh, people will come up to her and go. Hey, Kathy, aren't you so proud of your son? And she just looks at him and goes, what do you mean? I've been proud of him since the day he was born. <laughs> right? Like, and, I, I and I, when my mom uh, told me that at dinner, I was just like fucking crying. Oh, like, because yeah. it's true. You know, mm. she never wavered. And But that, that's a very hard place to get to because we haven't learned it and mm-hmm. hardly ever experienced it. And I certainly didn't have that on my father's side. You know, mm. that was a much different experience. Again, that sanctuary and the challenge, creating that optimal 
set of conditions. Um, but yeah, it's a fucking, it's a really interesting thing to just be aware of your conditional love and your unconditional love. And then when you step into a relationship, understand like unconditional love and radical acceptance must be the objective and mm. should be like really what you're leaning into. But it doesn't mean that you don't have choice or discretion, right? Like you can still, like the best way to make a choice, is this relationship serving me for and serving us for the highest good, is to be in unconditional love mm. and acceptance. It's not to be in judgment mm -hmm. or anger. Mm -hmm. And then use that as the distance to keep you like, if you really want to know if you should be with somebody, like the faster you step into unconditional love and acceptance, the deeper you'll know. Mm -hmm. It's not like it just like smooths things over. Mm -hmm. You know, because you're you're seeing the truth without your own emotional response, without these rejection patterns and other things. Like, you can still choose and have awareness, but getting to unconditional love and acceptance is like the best place. Mm. It's a place where you have the most free will and awareness and consciousness and agency to actually make any choice that we want to make. Absolutely. Mm. Mm, that's the goal. <laughs> hard though. Yeah. Really hard. How did your mom come to that perspective and that way of I being? I don't even fucking know. Like, it's like, like my grandma, <laughs> well, my grandmother. See, this is my grandma here. Oh. You can see her smiling. She Native American? Uh, spiritually, she was. Okay. That was the only kind of spiritual roots that our whole family had. Mm. But my grandmother was 100% like that to me. Mm. Like, always just love and smile and love and pride and strength and hot dogs and, you know, peanut butter celeries and, you know, like all the grandma things, but it was just this strength and unconditional love. And, you know, that it wasn't, didn't pass to all the, all her daughters in there, but for whatever reason that came through my mother in like such a strong way. And I see so many parallels to my mm -hmm. mother and my grandmother, you know, my mother, just the next evolution, that next leap forward and understanding and, um, you know, I can see that passed down to some extent, you know, to hopefully where I'm headed as well, you know, where I, my intention is to be and to be in a state where there's that much love and also mm. the words mm -hmm. that can philosophically describe and understand it. Um, but it, it was, it was there. And it's like this, this, because we learn from those around us. And I think she learned some of that from her mother and from her life experience and just the nature of who she was. There's like mm. some kind of Something just happened because there was, she, my mom has four sisters and they're very cool. They're loving. Like, I love my aunts, yeah. you know, and I love my uncle, but like, my mom is just, just different. Mm. And so, what is that? Is that, is that just some kind of genetic thing or right. is that like a spiritual thing or I don't know? Mm. That's a good question. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? How much do you think you learned? of your ability to tap into your own power. Did you get a lot of that from your mother, you think? I did entrepreneurially, I'd mm -hmm. say. You know, like I was at five, she's like, here's how you make money, <laughs> starting companies, online magazines at 11. That sort of like career, make, build, that sort of. But I was always, I remember being a young kid, like getting my first journal at five and just being so interested in the divine and feeling. And I don't know exactly where that came from. Yeah. Like I was writing, I was writing stories on my grandmother's lap. Like as soon as I could speak, mm -hmm. like weird, like there's certain proclivities that, that, you know, people just come in 
interested in some interesting things, you know, that it's just hard to describe like where and how and why it came from. And I don't think we'll fully know the answer of that until we transition to the other side. I mean, there's stories about what it is about souls choosing bodies for experiences and ways that they need to learn. And these souls have their natural proclivities and possibilities and tendencies, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and these patterns. And that certainly makes sense. But Fuck, how do you know? <laughs> you won't know until until we know, I suppose. The grand question. The grand question. <laughs> uh, well, as we wrap up here, any um, any last nuggets of wisdom or pieces of advice for anyone? What's coming to mind for me is something that I always have to give myself permission to. And, you know, as a creator, I'm always creating things that... I hope will help or support or uplift other people. And just the practice of creating for me and having that space just to, my friend referred to it as healing my own toothache, which is something that Pablo Picasso said and something Mm -hmm. that he really followed, which was all of his art was to heal his own toothache. Mm -hmm. And reminding myself that my work can be purely just to, to heal me. And through that healing and through that revelation that actually may be of the greatest service to others. Yeah. So just reminding people that go in and see what wants to be heard and served. Beautiful. Yeah. To be of service, you have to be fit for service. To be fit for service, you got to go deep inside. You got to look in the shadows. You got to shine the flashlights on all the nooks and crannies. You got to pour love into those parts that need it. Put the salve on the parts that need healing and open up to sunlight everything that you can and really give yourself the time and space and rest and sleep and nourishment to actually then have the abundance. Was it you said that, uh, you can fill the cup, but and then when the cup is overflowing and falls into the saucer, you can drink from the saucer. That, that wasn't you? me. So no, that wasn't you no said, but I like that. Said, <laughs> someone said that too. Like you fill your cup up so much, so your teacup up so much, and you keep filling it and keep filling it and filling it until it spills out and falls into the saucer. Mm. And then everybody can drink from the mm. saucer, right? But your cup yourself is always full and it's always abundant. So people aren't drinking your cup. Mm. You know, you're just allowing them to drink the overflow of everything that you've poured into yourself. And I thought that was like a cool way that. to like a cool Great way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I really got to figure out who said that now. <laughs> Um, it was great to have this you. This is amazing. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Check out your book, check out your blog, your Instagram, everything. Uh, Amber R-A-E. Find all that shit just by Googling <laughs> now. It's magical. Thanks for stopping in. Yeah, thank Always you, great to see you. You too. And thanks, everybody. Peace. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I deeply appreciate all you guys. And if you're interested, definitely check out the blog, aubreymarcus.com. We got a ton of cool shit on there. And poke around, look at some of the old articles and poetry and some of the places that I've gone and seen and done. And uh, hopefully you guys will enjoy that as well. And of course, once again, if you're interested in any of the tools, equipment, and foods from Onnit, go to onnit.com slash Aubrey, and you'll be able to save 10% on everything that's not too heavy to ship to a normal human being. We love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next week.